following the law perfectly that saves us, but it is by grace through faith in Christ that we're saved. And that's what the book of Galatians um, teaches us. We see in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And now in chapter 5, there's somewhat of a transition where the theology of by grace that we're saved, this is grace that we have not deserved, grace that we haven't earned on our own, but by grace that God's gift, God gives as a free gift, by grace that we're saved. And this happens through faith. God gives us grace through faith. And that faith is not just faith in church or faith in one another, faith in a heritage, faith in being born in America, faith being born into a family that um, is Christian, but it is faith in Christ. It is grace, God's gift that comes through faith and faith in Christ, trust in Christ by us, trusting and believing but believing in Christ in his, in his life and death and burial and resurrection and, and what the Scripture teaches us about Christ. It is by grace through faith in Christ that we're saved. So it is not obedience that saves us, but obedience is surely a part of the Christian's life. And so that is what we're going to talk about together and see how faith and obedience come together in Christian freedom. Where well, we're set free from the law, we are set free from bondage, we are set free from our sins, and we are set free to obey Christ and to have the freedom to love Christ and to love our neighbor, um, and we're set free to do that. I want to begin with a story that's modified a little because we are because uh, we don't have Route 52 today, so I want to make sure I'm not talking about a particular person, but. As I try to share the story, I want to just share with you one of the greatest joys of my life is being a father. And it makes me emotional just thinking of the blessing to be a father, to be a husband. And it also makes me probably more emotional to stay up really late and get up really early um, to prepare for this. So I'm sure that adds to it. But those emotions are just harder to push down when you're uh, not as rested. But they're real emotions. I love being a father. I love spending time with my children. I love spending time with my wife as a husband, not as a father, but as a husband to my wife. Um, and there's just lots of times in which God graces me by showing me um, himself through being a father, through being a parent, through being a spouse, that God just shows himself to me. And as, as, as much as I'm not a perfect father, the only good father parts of me are the things that God has worked into my heart and God's worked into my life. So I'm trying to be careful to not make it seem because I promise you want to hear more stories, go talk to my wife and she can give you lots more examples of, of not being a great father. But I love being a father because, um, because I, I just I love spending time with them. I've been blessed with a love for my children that is just, uh, that's just beautiful. And so through that, there are a lot of things I learn about faith and a lot of things I learn about um, how God loves and cares for me. When, 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 I, when I pray, the Lord is there to hear my prayers, and He cares about my prayers like a father cares for his child. And yet He gives me what I, what I need instead of what I'm praying for. And so when, when I see Laura Beth or Julianne asking me for things, um, then I'm reminded as much as I think, well, that's a silly thing. That's not really what's best for you. It's not what you need. I'll give you what's best for you, and I'll do what's best for you. I see this relationship um, with God. But specifically the story I want to tell this morning is about, it's not a 
particular story, but it's a story that happens over and over. We have toys, okay? And toys get everywhere. And um, especially in the bedroom because it's kind of off down a hall and you don't see the mess happening. And so those messes just begin to pile up. And it seems like that we have lots of friends and family members who like to give us uh, Barbie dolls and baby dolls and accessories and there's just thousands and thousands of pieces of things and then games and puzzles and they're just before long you can open the door and there'll just be a pile of stuff. So what happens pretty regularly is that Lizzie or myself will say, you need to pick that up. Okay, pick that up. And what we hear a lot of times is, daddy, help me pick that up. Mommy, mommy, can you help me pick that up? And I want you to know that most of the time I probably don't help uh, to pick those things up. But in a few of those moments, when I've been a good father, in a few of those moments I get to sit down on the floor with her and help her pick those things up. And so something that was a burden to her, because I can tell you, you can probably imagine on your own, when there's a pile of stuff and you tell your child, okay, now you've got to clean up. Okay, you've done this, now you've got to fix this. You've broke this, now you've got to fix this, take, fix this, take care of this. But your children understand there's a consequence to not doing what you say, right? There's a consequence to that. And there's a burden that you've just put on your child to say, here's a mess that you need to clean up. But there's a part of that burden that's lifted when Daddy gets down on the floor and says, I'll help. Not only will I help, I'll show you how it's done. And I'll help you through it, and I'll get a box of Ziploc bags, and I'll get these containers out, and we'll begin to little by little organize this. And it can become, cleaning up can become part of play sometimes. And so there's a relationship happening with this cleaning up. And so there's this on the floor cleaning up, and you're showing how to clean up. And I'm showing my children, here's how you clean up, and here's how we can organize. And then there's some eye-to-eye time, and then there's usually a lot of tickling time. And in the middle, every time I see them do something cute, I want to hug. And so there's a lot of squeezing time that's involved in this. So this thing that could be a burden, which is cleaning the floor, the thing that could be a burden is all of a sudden a joy. And to my children, and you can imagine to your children, it is all of a sudden a joy to spend time on the floor with your father learning and relating and connecting. And this is what I want to tell this story to share this with you. That what happens is that Christian freedom is a joy. Obedience is a joy in which we do not work on our own, but Christ has done the work for us to begin with. And then the Spirit of God dwells in us to clean up messes that we've made and to ask for forgiveness and to fix the wrongs that we've done and to make things right with our brothers and sisters and to work in our lives that that God works in our lives to produce godliness. And the fruits of the Spirit are verse 22 on, and you know those fruits of the Spirit. But what happens is God works in you to produce in you Himself. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, understanding. And so what happens? We just celebrated Christmas. We just celebrated Christmas. We're still celebrating Christmas. We should always celebrate that when God came down and sat on the floor with us and related to us, And he taught us how to live. And he showed us how to live. And God in flesh, God incarnate, showed us how to live. And with the ultimate sacrifice, in his joy, obedience to the Father, went to the cross. 
But yet God didn't leave us there. What God did is put the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So not only did God come down and show us, but God lives inside of us. And so this terrible heart and this terrible spirit that has no clue how to be a dad, has no clue how to be a husband, has no clue how to be a friend, whose spirit and selfishness in me is looking for myself and looking for my ways first. What God does is He indwells me, He lives in my heart, and there's fruit of the Spirit produced, but guess what? It's not my fruit. It's not me, but it's Christ in me. It is God in me. So with this in mind and that description of of Christian freedom... Then I'd like to walk through the passage today, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We'll look, actually, let's, let's start here on the notes. Enemies to Christian freedom. The first thing we're going to do is look at two enemies to Christian freedom. And two things that are working against Christian freedom, dangers that we see here in the passage. Number one, legalism. Legalism is working to earn God's favor. The first danger we see here is legalism. There's a specific example in here, and so we'll just point that out and notice the example. Look in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Look in verse 3. Look, I, excuse me, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Look again in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love, or faith expressing itself through love. Look again in verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. So we see an example here in the Scripture, and the example here is circumcision. But I want you to know that this is just an example. What probably hits closer to home to you or I is service to the church. Giving. Serving one another. There are all these acts of obedience. There are these acts of faith and acts of obedience that we live out day to day in our lives that it can be a danger. Obedience, yes, a part of the Christian life. But if we think that there's anything we can do to work to earn God's favor, then this is legalism. And in the passage, I want to see what legalism does. Look in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of legalism can affect... Everything, Just like a little leaven goes into bread and the bread will rise, yeast being a type of a leaven, um, the, a little bit goes in and the, all of the bread will rise because that's going in. A little bit con- contaminates the whole thing. If I offered you a glass of water this morning and I said, here's a very pure glass of water. Here, take and drink it. It's cold, refreshing, looks good. But as my nose is starting to run because of my crying now, if somehow one drop of what's coming out of my nose entered into that glass of water, yeah, I know, it could have been a worse illustration. If one glass of that entered the cup of water, I could say it is 99.9% pure 
filtered drinking water. It is cold. It still glistens as the light hits the glass. This is good drinking water, but yeah, by the way, there's one drop of nasty in it. Who would still want that cup of water? See, here's what happens. Legalism contaminates. If we live our lives mostly in a way that we know it is only by by grace through faith in Christ, that is only God's work that saves us, but yet we think, in just a little, very small part of it, we think, but you know what? I'm sure I made God a little bit happier with me right now with what I just did there. Legalism begins to creep in, and I want you to know that legalism contaminates and can have a major effect on you personally. It can have a major effect on the body of Christ and the, and the church as a whole. Also look in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Legalism contaminates, and legalism also condemns. Legalism contaminates, legalism condemns. I'll just point to you, or I'll just point you to verse 12 to see how strongly Paul is speaking against legalism here. Um, This is a serious thing, okay? He is speaking in a very tough tone right now. He's speaking in a very difficult tone where he's very serious about how dangerous legalism is. Legalism contaminates, legalism condemns. And the second enemy to Christian freedom, and this is like the opposite of legalism, it's license. License is forgetting obedience altogether. Just like legalism is saying, you know what? There's something I can do to earn God's favor. There's something that I can do to make God please. And it seems like it's not that bad of a thing, but yet we have to understand the Scripture tells us that Christ has done everything to earn God's favor. Christ has done everything necessary for salvation. Christ has done everything necessary for godliness in our lives. Christ has done it all, and when we think we can add something to that, then we're contaminating the whole gospel. When we think we can, and we live in a way, and we teach in a way, and we show in a way to say, yeah, Christ did most of it, but there's something you can do to make it a little bit better. There's something you can add to it just a little bit. That what happens is we contaminate and we condemn. Just like that's legalism, license is forgetting obedience altogether. And saying, you know what? Well, since God's grace covers my sin, since God forgives me for everything I've ever done or anything I'll ever do there, then guess what? I guess I'll live however I want. License is forgetting obedience altogether. The gospel is not intended to only be believed or accepted, but it is intended to be obeyed and applied. Say that again. The gospel isn't intended to only be believed or accepted, but it is to be obeyed and applied in our lives. You see, there are a lot of us who've been around church a long time. And we've been told, believe and accept Jesus into your heart. Pray this prayer and everything's going to be fine. Walk this aisle and everything's going to be fine. Get dunked in those waters, and everything will be fine. Just believe and accept Him into your heart, and everything will be fine. And the truth is that it is only Christ's work that can save you. And yes, there's nothing you can do to add to Christ's work 
for you. There's nothing you, didn't, you can do to add to Christ's righteousness. Yet the Scripture tells us that obedience is a necessary part and a fundamental part of our Christian lives. It is a fundamental part of our Christian lives. Look in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So we can't throw out obedience. It is not obedience that adds to our righteousness. It is not obedience that makes us righteous. But the gospel is intended to be believed and accepted, but it's also intended to be obeyed and applied. And just as I illustrated earlier, Christ came down and showed us how to perfectly obey the Father. He showed us how to perfectly live, and then the Spirit of God lives in us. And what the Scripture tells us is we're given a new heart, and we're given a new spirit. And with the Spirit of God in us, that our hearts desire to obey Him. So no, obedience is not necessary to be saved. But when you're saved, obedience will necessarily follow in your lives. And if you think that walking down an aisle saved you, then that's legalism. If you think saying words, praying a prayer, repeating words after someone saves you, then that's legalism. If you think being dunked in the water and something about your action coming down, your action being baptized, if you think there's something about that action, something about accepting or believing in your work that saves you, then that's legalism. But the Scripture tells us that when your heart is changed and transformed by the gospel, when you turn from your sins, when you repent from your sins, that God changes your heart and what necessarily will follow is obedience. And not perfection, but obedience. And we'll follow that up in just a little while. Christian freedom's essentials. Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Neither works nor not works counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's interesting that Paul is dwelling on circumcision for the entire book of Galatians. He's specifically um, teaching teaching against the Judaizers who told people you must... Um, you must be circumcised in order to be a Christian. In order to be saved, you must be circumcised. What ha- you, you need to be circumcised and fully obey the Jewish law and fully conform to the Jewish law. And yes, you add Christ to that, but you must fully um, obey the law perfectly and circumcision being a part of that. So Paul is speaking strongly against circumcision here but or in the book. But you see here in verse 6, he says, "...neither circumcision nor uncircumcision." Counts for anything. Earlier in chapter 2, he said, he said he recommended to Titus not to be circumcised. But yet we see in, in Acts chapter 15, I believe it is, in, in Acts chapter 15, he's, he's speaking to Timothy and he, te- and, he, and he actually encourages Timothy to be circumcised. But he encourages Timothy to be circumcised. Let's see, Acts 16, 3, he encourages Timothy to be circumcised. Um, for the sake of the advance of the gospel to the unbelieving Jews. 
See, Timothy's working with Jews who are unbelievers, and there's a, it's an hindrance there. It's an obstacle there to reaching the Jews. So Paul says, you know what? You're working with the Jews. You're working with those. This will be a way that you can bring unbelieving Jews the gospel. And he encouraged them to be all things to all people. Doesn't use the terms there, but that idea. And so he encourages Timothy to be circumcised. One person he encourages to be circumcised. The other he encourages not to be circumcised. We see here in verse 6, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So it's not legalism. It's not doing this list of things or saying, I don't have to do these list of things. Those things don't count for anything, but what is it that counts for everything? But only faith working through love. I want you to notice those one, two, three, and four by faith through the Spirit, in hope, with love. We lifted that right out of Galatians 5, 5, and 6, which is on your page and should be underlined there. On your page also, we're going to walk through those one by one, um, through all four. By faith, number one, we don't work for God. We don't work for God. This is not an employer-employee relationship. The relationship that we have with God is not that God is the employer and we are the employee. Look in Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5, or read with me here. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you are a worker, when your employer pays you for the work you've done, it's not because he likes you. He may like you. He's working you... He's paying you for the work you've done because you've earned it. In an employer-employee relationship, when you do work, the employer pays your wage. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. It's not a gift when your boss gives you your paycheck. But but it's given as his due. But look in verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but instead believes or trusts in him who justifies the ungodly... His faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Galatians chapter 5 is in this context coming right out of Galatians chapter 4. You're welcome to look back and read and skim through that. There's a discussion there of between slaves and sons. How that, how that we were slaves to the law, but through Christ we've been adopted as sons of God. We were slaves to the, to the law and had to obey the law and obey it perfectly and, and submit to it perfectly and wholly and completely. But now we are no longer slaves to the law, but instead we are sons of God. So there's this description on where slaves, how do they get paid? Okay, they get paid based on their work. All right, how do they please their master? They want to please their master. They work hard so they can please their master, and their master will give them the wage, whether that's food to eat and a place to sleep and a a measly wage there. That's how a slave relates to his master. But the Scripture here is telling us that we are no longer slaves, but we are sons of God. We are sons to the King. Sons to the God who gets down on the floor with us and shows us how to live. And who cares for us and tenderly hugs us and nudges us 
and maybe tenderly tickles us or tenderly plays with us and shows us, and when we're doing something wrong, shows us this is the correct way, and who lives in us to show us how to live, who lives in us to teach us obedience, but also to motivate us to obedience because we love him because he first loved us. Then we obey him. By faith, we don't work for God. Look in verse 2 to see what we lose here. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, if you accept the way that somehow you work for God, if somehow you think you can add to God's work, if you accept circumcision, then what? Christ will be no advantage to you. Another translation says Christ would be of no benefit to you. If we try to work for God, we lose the advantage of Christ. He is of no advantage to us. What else? What do we gain? We lose advantage of Christ if we try to work for God, but we gain obligation to the law. Look in verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So go on and live and try to live for yourself. Go on and try to please God on your own works. What happens? You lose the advantage of Christ. And you gain the whole law. You gain obligation to the entire law. It is by faith that we need to understand Christian freedom. We don't trust, excuse me, we trust in God's work for His work of justification. So we don't trust in our work, we don't trust in our accomplishments, we don't trust in the things that we have done, but instead we trust in Christ. We trust in God's work for His work of justification, for Christ on the cross knowing that His blood atoned for our sins and we are made right with God because of Christ. We're not working for God. Instead, we're trusting in God, trusting in His work. Let me give you a few things. For legalism, I use the word legalism, and you think, okay, maybe me. I'm not sure. I use the word circumcision. Most of us think this is not an issue. This is not a problem for us. We're not struggling with this or with that. Um, But what can we struggle with? What can become legalistic for us here in our church and even here in this church? Bible study. Service. Praying, missions, evangelism. These things can become legalistic for us that we think somehow when we give our tithes and offerings that we're pleasing God with our work. That somehow getting up early in the morning to read the scriptures is pleasing God. That we think somehow staying up late and getting up early to preach this morning somehow pleases God and makes me more right with God, that we think somehow by praying, somehow by going on mission trips, somehow by, by doing evangelism, doing the other things we see in the scripture that we're commanded to do, that we think somehow that this thing makes God more pleased with us. What we're doing there is nullifying Christ's work in us. Every one of these things, Bible study, service, praying, missions, evangelism, this is God working in us. And for us, 
Christ did the work for us to atone for our sins. And currently Christ is working in you and in me to produce the fruit of the Spirit. It is not my work that produces the fruit of the Spirit. It is Christ's work in me that produces the fruit of the Spirit. For those of you going on mission, those of you praying fervently, those of you who are serving your neighbors and serving your families and serving the church, it is not you, but it is Christ in you who has come down and sat on the floor with us who has played with us, who has taught us, who has shown us, and who is currently living inside of us and dwelling in us and showing us the way and empowering us to do. We trust in God for His work of justification. We also trust in God for His work currently in our hearts, in our lives, for sanctification and sanctifying us. Number two, through the Spirit, we are freed from sin. Through the Spirit, we are freed from sin. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Freedom isn't living how I want to live. Christian freedom is not saying I am now free to do whatever I want to do. Because if we do whatever I want to do, then what we are are slaves to ourselves. We are slaves to an earthly master. When we live as the way that we want to live, then we are slaves to ourselves, and that is idolatry, and that is idolatry to ourselves. The freedom isn't living however I want. That's slavery to self. But freedom is living for Christ, being free to live how Christ wants. It's free to obey Christ. The Spirit frees us to enjoy the commands of Christ. There are two blanks there. We are freed from sin and we are freed to Christ. We are freed from sin and we are freed to Christ. Let me read 1 John 5, 3 for you again. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. But look at the last part of this verse. And His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Making a relationship right with your neighbor is not burdensome. Because even though it's difficult to swallow your pride, even though it's difficult to reach out to your spouse, even though it's difficult to apologize to your employer, it's not burdensome. Because you know that forgiveness is the work of God. You know that forgiveness is the will of God. It is not burdensome to choose the better. It is not burdensome to toil in life, to work hard in life, in order to bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. We are free from sin, and we are freed to Christ. In hope, number three, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly wait for the hope of of righteousness actually lifted directly from Galatians 5:5 5, 5. we ourselves eagerly await for the hope 
of righteousness. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 8, probably not starting in 18, um, but starting in verse 23. You see in Galatians 5, 5 says that we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Look in Galatians chapter 2. In verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Okay, where this fruit come out of our lives? What is it? Fruit of what? First fruits of the Spirit. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. What Paul is saying here is we have a hope that we're waiting for. And this hope that we're waiting for is a glorified state in which we are with God for all of eternity. And our redemption is complete even though that our sins have been paid for, we are still living in broken bodies, we're still living in sin in a sinful world and we still have these temptations, we still have these struggles. What Paul is saying is we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In verse 23, and those who have the first fruits of the spirit in them, those who are believers in Christ who have the spirit of God in them, they groan inwardly as they wait eagerly. You see the excitement eagerly, groaning. I can't wait, I'm anticipating. I cannot wait for that moment, but when I stand before Christ. Can you imagine that for a minute? There's a difference between a believer and an unbeliever. There are many who have no hope that they're afraid to stand before God and give an account of their lives. But Paul is saying here that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit in us, we eagerly anticipate standing before God and God saying, righteous because of Christ. Because of Christ's work for us, he says, righteous. And because of the completed work of Christ in us, He has now completely made us righteous and holy. And there is no more sin, and there is no more death, and there is no more pain, no more tears. And we stand before God knowing that the end of this is good. And the end of this is perfection as God adopts us completely as sons and our bodies are redeemed. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who waits for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Something that really irks me and gets under my skin. And when I say it irks me, because I see it in my life too. Is that we as believers complain about our present circumstances. And sometimes we say it in a way that we don't want to be complaining, but we want sympathy. We want everybody to know how difficult it is for us. Or when we're just on the inside struggling through, why does it have to be this way? Why is it so difficult? Why am I going through this? Look in verse 18 of chapter 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Christian, let me tell you, you may be in the middle of this race. Don't stop running. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Do not stop obeying the truth. Freshman in college, just left, went to college. Don't stop. 
senior adults, you've been running well. Don't, don't be hindered from obeying the truth. Ninth graders, don't be hindered. Children who remain, don't be hindered. Continue to obey the truth. Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. When Paul talks about the Christian life, he talks about it being a race, but not a sprint race, more like a marathon race. He talks about it being a war. He talks about it being a battle. He talks about it being a, a struggle. And what he's saying here is you might be on mile number six and have 20.2 miles to go, but don't stop. Eagerly anticipate the end. Know how it ends. Know that God has come down and sat on the floor and showed us how to live. That God is in our hearts, in our lives, showing us presently how to live. And when we consider the sufferings of this present time, let's consider them of no value compared to the glory of Christ. And so you know mile number six may be the most difficult mile you've gone through, and you don't know if it gets harder from there or easier from there. But you know when you get to mile 26 and you stand before your Lord and Savior, when you stand before Him, says, well done, my good and faithful servant. He stands and says, you know what? It's not your righteousness that I see, but it's Christ's righteousness that paid for your sins. And even the fruit of the Spirit that worked out in your life, it is not your work that was done, but it was Christ's work in you, and it displayed my glory to the ends of the earth. It is by faith, through the Spirit, in hope and with love. Look in verse 13 for me. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out so you are not consumed by one another. Love is an essential expression of salvation. It is an essential expression. Now hear this. It is not the means to salvation. It is not a necessary means to salvation, but is it is a essential expression. John 13:35, you'll know that they are my disciples if they love one another. It is an essential expression that will happen. You'll know they're my disciples if they love one another. Is Christ in you? If so, then ask Christ to produce this kind of love in you. Faith that expresses itself through love. Faith that gives, serves. Look in verse 13. You see that it says, but through love serve one another. This is the same word in the Greek text, that they sometimes translate as slaves. So translate it this way, but through love, slave yourself one to another. Faith that expresses itself through love. Faith that gives and serves. Faith that forgives, reaches out, sacrifices. Look in the blanks under number four. Free from slavery to the law, 
to slavery to love. We are freed from slavery to the law to slavery to love. So no longer is the law our master, but instead we are voluntarily a slave and the desires of our hearts push us to want to love. And we're not enslaved to the law anymore, but we are enslaved to love. We don't indulge in selfish sin anymore, but serve others in selfless love. Mark out that word sin after that last one and write the word love. We don't indulge in selfish sin anymore, but instead we serve others in selfless love. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, write that reference next to this. Because this is one that should have been printed out on the page. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, says this. The Son of Man did not come to be what? Son of Man did not come to be what? Served. Son of man did not come to be served, but what? But to serve. Son of man did not come and get on the floor with us and show us who God is and what God was like to be served. Why did he come? But to serve. Did he do this out of obligation? Or did he do this out of love? Son of man came not to be served. But to serve, he did this out of love. Now, just in a few moments, I wanted to attempt to apply this. I'm going to ask you to look to the person next to you. If that's uncomfortable for you, then look to the person in your mind. I want you to, I just want you to have a, have a personal realization that the things that we're talking about are not just in theory. So if it's helpful for you to think of the children starving without their basic needs across the world, if it's helpful for you to visualize your neighbor who is lost without Christ, then look to your neighbor next to you or visualize that person that God has put in your mind. And I want to ask you, a few things. Say to yourself or say to this neighbor, I would rather live in excess and waste and in comfort than to see your basic physical needs met. I want you to say to your lost coworker, I'd rather focus on my nervousness or my pride, my anxiety, or my fear than to share the gospel with you. I'd rather see you lost in eternity, lost without Christ, without knowing the love of God, than to share the gospel with you. I'd rather be selfish and selfless than to serve you and to serve others. If you can say that with good conscience, then let me say that Christ... It's not at work in your heart. That it may be possible that you have prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or been dunked in water. But if you don't struggle with that, then Christ is not Lord and Master of your life. Faith is never to be only believed or accepted, but it is to be obeyed and applied in our lives. Look and see how faith, how by faith, 
through the Spirit in hope with love works together. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Then at the bottom, the definition for Christian freedom, based on these two verses. Christian freedom is to live by faith through the Spirit in hope and with love. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. As we enter into our time of response this morning, I pray that God has worked in your heart and shown you your need to trust in Him. If you have been relying on your work and you have not trusted in Christ, you've not trusted in Christ's work for you, but instead you've trusted on your ability to work for Him, then I want to invite you to trust in Him this morning. If you know you're a believer in Christ... Yet you feel that what you've been doing has been focused more on yourself than the needs of others. That Christian freedom has not expressed itself in your life by faith, knowing that it is only God's work that can save you through the Spirit. That you haven't relied on Him to work through you and produce fruit in your life. That you're not hoping, eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. And faith hasn't worked itself through love or hasn't exercised itself through love. That you're coming to repent of that this morning. And you're praying and asking God to work in your heart. Number one, Christ has to be in your heart. For this to take place. Father, I pray that the believers in this room will submit themselves to your will. Not as an obligation, but understanding that your grace is a gift. And Father, that our prayers this morning would be that you would change us. We would live by spirit. Excuse me, live by faith in your spirit and have the hope that only you give. And Father, for those in this room that are burdened without Christ, Father, I pray that they would ask you to save them. Father, they would trust you now to forgive their sins and transform their hearts. Father, they would pray, Yes, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And that you've risen from the grave. And that your righteousness is mine. And it is free, free not as an obligation, but as a gift. And that I trust in you. And trust that you will change me. So that I may live by faith in your spirit. And want the hope that you give. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts.
Father, I pray that you would be honored by the fruit that you produce. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged by your work in our lives and in the life of our church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I invite you to come forward and respond to the Lord's work in your heart. Just as I